Welcome to Optimal Neurospine Podcast, a podcast about optimizing our brain and spine in health and disease. Each episode, leading neuroscientists, neurosurgeons, educators, patients, spine care, and quality improvement experts discuss their research, experience, emerging science, surgical advances, and insights about how to optimize neurological and spine care. Now, here's your host, Dr. Max Boyacci. Welcome to the Optimal Neurospine Podcast. Today, this is episode four. We will be speaking with Dr. Eric Ludhart, who is an expert on great computer interface work. Dr. Ludhart is a neurosurgeon. He's currently professor with the Department of Neurological Surgery and the Department of Biomedical Engineering at Washington University in St. Louis. He's also chief of the Division of Neurotechnology and director of the Center for Innovation in Neuroscience and Technology and the Brain Laser Center. We will be speaking to him today about his work, which is focused on brain-computer interfaces and brain mapping using engineering approaches to decode the brain to create novel diagnostics and treatments. Dr. Buhart, welcome. Well, thanks very much for having me. I always start by talking about your current practice. You're a clinician scientist. What is your clinical practice like? That's a great question. So I'd say that my practice is split between neuro-oncology, taking care of brain tumors, and epilepsy. So I'd say probably probably my practice is a little bit heavier on brain tumors and a little bit lighter on epilepsy, ranging from, for the brain tumor practice, you know, things within that I focus on, tumors around eloquent cortex and minimally invasive approaches such as laser ablation, which is a deep interest of mine. And then with epilepsy, it involves stereo EEG and laser ablation as well. And you're also a scientist. So what percentage of your time is spent doing surgery and what percentage is spent being a scientist research? Well, I always say it's 70-70. So, you know, in the sense of a big clinical practice, but also a big laboratory practice, but they're about equal in the time that I spend between the two. Excellent. So what is your clinical practice, uh, tumors and epilepsy? What about your research? What are you working on in the lab? Yeah, so I think we cover a number of things in the laboratory, but I think the central ethos of my lab is understand how the brain encodes information and translate those insights into practical clinical applications. And so I'd say that probably the two cornerstones of my laboratory are brain-computer interfaces, very specifically brain-computer interfaces to modulate neural circuitry. One of the big ones has been creating non-invasive brain-computer interfaces for stroke rehabilitation, but we're now expanding that to other applications of sensory motor disorders. And then, you know, on the other side of that, taking the same analytic approaches to decode how the brain does stuff to allow people to control stuff with their thoughts, we're doing the inverse. We're taking analytic approaches and to do advanced brain mapping. So we do a lot with resting state fMRI to basically create AI techniques to automate brain mapping to enhance surgical decision making, whether it be brain mapping for planning of a surgery or using those techniques in the setting of brain tumors to create radiographic uh, biomarkers or survival so we can actually predict how long you survive with a given tumor. I would ask you a little bit about that later. So how did you uh, get involved in this type of scientific research? Well, I think fundamentally, I love 
the interaction between engineering and neurosurgery. I think neurosurgeons are fundamentally tool makers and tool users. And so I think there's a real synergy between the surgical mindset and the engineering mindset. And I think really what got me started on this path was really thinking about, you know, brain-computer interfaces or thought-controlled machines. But I think that that really sets the stage for, I think, really without, you know, speaking in hyperbole, that, you know, creating advanced neural interfaces and brain-computer interfaces and decoding the brain and our thoughts really has an exponential implication for how we can treat neurologic diseases, but also enhance or modify kind of humans. And so I think that this is really just the earliest stages of kind of how we rethink how humans interact with machines. So that really captured my imagination. And so it was really you know, one of my fundamental passions when I started out as a faculty to create a, you know, a brain computer interface that was clinically relevant. And so that's what I've been working on really for the past, you know, since 2003 and 2004. What kind of background allows you to do this work? Are you an engineer by, by yourself or you work with in, engineers? Well, that's a funny question. So I guess me, my, the, my formal degrees are in biology and theology. And I remember when I first met with the engineering chairman, you know, kind of back in the early 2000s saying that I wanted to do engineering research. And he kind of you know, raised his eyebrow and he said, why don't I get you involved, <laughs> connected to this new guy named Dan Moran, and who is a neuroengineer who just started at Wash U. And, you know, he and I became fast friends. And I think the one thing that, you know, neurosurgeons know, especially neurosurgery residents know how to do really well is work really, really hard. And that's what I did. So, you know, I learned from scratch, engineering, software, you know, coding and programming. You know, I built my first amplifier that we used uh, for our first human experiments and really kind of, you know, was self-taught with a lot of engineering principles. And actually that dubious chairman actually was kind of the lead in recruiting me back to Wash U, you know, many years later. And so, and so actually now I'm a professor of biomedical engineering and a professor of mechanical engineering. And I've trained, I don't know, you know, dozens, many dozens of engineering students through my lab and my center. So, but I'd say, you know, I self-taught engineering backgrounds, but no formal degrees in engineering. So we actually also interviewed, my previous episode was actually also interviewing Dr. Jamie Henderson, who's also doing brain-computer interface. And he talked about two types, one being invasive and one being non-invasive. So let me ask you about what type of brain-computer interface, what is the approach that you're using is it similar to Dr. Henderson's or is it totally different? Yeah, it's different. So, and I would say that the range of, and I actually just recently published a paper on this in Frontiers of Neural Engineering, is there is a whole explosion of form factors of neural interfaces. And, you know, and I think that they range from non-invasive, meaning things that you put on your scalp or even kind of, you know, light-based techniques such as near-infrared to invasive, which are technologies that are intracranial. And those are things like electrocorticography, stuff that I worked on very early in my career, and uh, such as electrodes on the surface of the brain to implant it in the brain, you know, such as intraparenchymal, whether they're single electrodes, which is what you know, Jamie Henderson works on, to local field potentials that are recording from populations of cells to intravascular technologies. And emerging technologies are what we call embedded meaning you know, stuff that's under the scalp or in the skull, but not intracranial. And each of them, quite honestly, has different amounts of information they provide and different risk profiles. 
honestly, I'd say with the exception of, you know, single neuron recording, I work with, you know, many of those techniques uh, from non-invasive to embedded to ECOG to intracranial. And I think, it, you know, which form factor and which, you know, kind of indication, it really you know, varies a lot. So for our stroke patients, we have a non-invasive wearable electrode headset that, you know, connects to a robotic exoskeleton that's wearable. It's completely non-invasive. And we actually get these patients fitted and we send them home and they do their BCI at home. We're working on other technologies that are surgically implanted and we're getting ready to do some clinical trials in humans for that after getting FDA IDE approval. So, you know, again, it really, I'd say, you know, I work with all the vast majority of the form factors and we're working on them, you know, to optimize the form factor for the clinical indication. Now, there are concerns with these interfaces. So they can be used to uh, help deficits, right? But it seems like there's a category of brain-computer interface that actually enhances human function, like memory and things like that. Can you discuss that? Yeah, and, uh, you know, honestly, I think that there absolutely are at least the potential to have technologies that can serve a dual purpose where they can potentially restore a deficit or can restore, you know, what I would call a networkopathy and imbalance in the brain networks to kind of improve people's function. A nice example of that is in the setting of depression, an area that you would stimulate, such as dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, could, and actually with transcranial magnetic stimulation has been shown to improve mood with therapy. And that's one of the classic uses of TMS for depression. Now, but that same target in a normal subject could potentially be used to enhance attention and memory. And I certainly appreciate the ethical implications of those devices in that you could potentially make people, you know, kind of better than their baselines. And I think there's several ways to think about this. I think one, we are going to see a natural progression between restoration and augmentation. And I think in many ways, we've seen that historically already. If you look at kind of the history of plastic surgery, plastic surgery originally was a largely restorative approach, whether it be, you know, kind of reconstructing a nose or a face after a traumatic injury or breast prostheses for after a mastectomy for cancer. And those technologies and those approaches and techniques evolved to become, you know, cosmetic in nature because people wanted to change themselves for because they had a self-perceived notion of benefit, meaning that they felt they could be better or better, their better selves by changing themselves. And I think that we see this kind of changing of values and morals and, and kind of what is appropriate, not appropriate, and the sense of body modification is really evolving. And just as I think that cosmetic surgery is kind of essentially evolved with these change in social perceptions, I think we're going to see the same thing happen with neural interfaces and that people can be perhaps what we would consider their optimal selves with a neural interface, whether it's an implant or a non-invasive version. And I think that raises some, again, further ethical dimensions of who can have it and who can't. That could this, you know, kind of lead to further social separation. And that's an important consideration. Now, that said, I think fundamentally enhancing human intelligence is a good thing. And, you know, again, looking at history, what is the technology that's, you know, really augmented our 
cognitive capabilities and what's the impact been on society? Well, that's essentially kind of the personal computer and now mobile phones that these technologies have fundamentally enhanced our cognitive abilities. They are access to information, our calculations, everything. And I think that the global impact of that has been a net positive. Have there been adverse events? Have there been negative things as a result of personal computing? Absolutely. But the net result in society has improved. You know, I think we can process information faster. We can get solutions faster. You know, I don't think we would have gotten a COVID vaccine if we didn't have advanced computing and genetic sequencing to solve the pandemic. So I think it's a net positive. And similarly, if we can improve human intelligence in a meaningful way and have it equitably accessible, that improving human intelligence is a fundamentally socially positive thing. Yeah, obviously, it's a lot of ethical issues of who should get it. You know, is there a psychological frame of my, you know, like criteria for getting, you know, so, but uh, how far are we from this? Are we talking like in the next decade or another 50 years? How far do you think before this is becomes, you know, available? I think realistic things that we can see in the near future is, you know, within a five to 10 year time frame. I think it is very realistic that we will have implants for mood disorders. Again, full disclosure, I'm actually one of the companies that I found that is working on that. Depression and anxiety and things like that. Yeah, I think that that's, you know, very realistic. You know, I think things that can, you know, can perhaps be cognitive augments, or I'd say, you know, somewhere in between an augment and a restorative is, for instance, age-related degeneration, not dementia or not you know, kind of some pathologic process, but we all know kind of like with our eyes that, you know, as we get older, we get cataracts and they don't, our eyes don't work as well. People get minimally invasive surgeries to kind of make their, you know, get their eyes back to where they should be. I think, you know, that it's not unreasonable to imagine in, you know, 10 to 20 year time frame that people get implants where they're again, just maintaining their cognitive abilities as they get older because we're going to have an aging population that demand is going to increase. Now, the more science fiction-y kind of wild stuff, like, you know, can we share thoughts between people? Can we, you know, download memories? Can we, you know, kind of, you know, what Elon Musk likes to think about is like, you know, kind of having some type of union with, you know, artificial intelligence and, you know, our minds or true, complete neural decoding. You know, I don't know exactly when that's going to happen, but I do think, you know, whether it's 50 years a hundred years, two hundred years, that that's a a brief time in the evolution of human history. And when that does happen, which I do believe it will happen, that it's going to dramatically alter kind of you know our human the fabric of our human experience. And whether we can download kind of, you know, kind of the information of our cognition, I mean I think that that will fundamentally alter kind of, you know, what it is to be human and kind of how we interact, kind of everything. Now again, Pinning that one down is a harder one just because, again, technology moves so quickly. You know, I could say it's going to be 200 years and maybe it's 50 years. I could say it's 50 years and maybe it's a thousand years. But again, the direction is inevitable. Again, just and when it does happen, then I think we're going to hit hit another exponential spike in kind of, you know, our human experience, just as we've experienced an exponential spike in the human experience over the last hundred years. So you mentioned that you were a biology and a theology major, and you seem to, the area that you are doing research is the area that really gets at very core theological questions. How has that background shaped, you know, how you view 
the implications of everything that you, all the research that you're doing? You know, it's a great question. You know, I, I would say that, you know, ironically, that my theology major was the most important area of study that shaped my career because it really forced me to think about the meaning of things. And I think when you do that, you also think about the implications in the future. And the more you think about the future, the more you work your way backwards to the technical details and the, and the here and now. So it really does. And I think that that habit of thinking about the meaning of things and the implications in the future really kind of permeates my research. And I'm always thinking of, well, as we come up with these discoveries and as we kind of have these develop these technologies, what, you know, what does this mean? What's the implications? And sometimes it gets me excited and sometimes it makes me a little nervous. And, and also I think that, you know, in addition to kind of doing the science, I just think it is critically important to message and about the good, the bad, and the ugly of these technologies and to be, you know, honest about them. That's why, for instance, I wrote two fiction novels that are kind of thrillers about, you know, what can happen when, you know, things go wrong. And so I think that I take a much more expansive view on kind of the work that I'm doing and, and how I communicate it. What is the uh, fiction books that you've written about? What are the titles and what are they about? So okay, my first novel is uh, Red Devil 4. And basically, it's set 40 years in the future when neural interfaces are ubiquitous, right? Everybody's got one and it can, you know, draw information from your mind. You can share thoughts. You can download experiences. Uh, you can have virtual experiences that are truly real in the sensory perception way of thinking about it. And uh, kind of concurrent with developing brain computer interfaces is that AI will also, just as we understand the brain function, we will see kind of also an emergence of, you know, more meaningful artificial intelligence. And basically the crux of the the book is about this interface of AI and neural interfaces when your brain and AIs potentially become hackable. And what are the negative implications of that? You know, so for instance, could somebody have undue influence on your behavior? And what does that mean? And so it's kind of written in a Crichton style, you know, or Da Vinci Code style kind of way. And so that it's meant to be, you know, a little bit scary, a little bit interesting, certainly for the lay audience. And then my second novel called Limbo, again, except just a little bit further in the future. And uh, again, neural interfaces are ubiquitous. Everybody's got them. But now, you know, kind of corporations are getting involved and large corporations and your data is important. And again, if people have had, you know, these implants for a long time, let's say they've had them for one or two decades, and it not only does it decode your thoughts, but it stores them, it records them so that you have this running ledger of kind of every memory and thought you've had for years, you can create a virtual version of yourself. And does that mean you can essentially, you know, so kind of in the book, companies are uh, now offering, you know, basically to restore a virtual version of yourself after you've died. What happens when companies have that type of power over virtual renderings of a sentient being? And, you know, again, what are the adverse implications? So it kind of gets into a deeper dive in terms of kind of, you know, what does it mean to be alive and dead when you can, every element of your mind can be stored. Wow, it's fascinating stuff. Did you always want to be a writer? You know, when did you decide to write these books? Well, I do enjoy writing. I think that, again, having done my theology major, you know, you, you had to do a lot of writing and I like writing and, and I like communicating and I like fundamentally the creative and artistic process. You know, kind of before I did a lot of writing, I did a lot of oil painting. But again, once I became faculty, you know, I just found myself in a lot of airplanes and a lot of, you know, certainly before I had a family and kids, like I was traveling all the time, giving talks and, and I wanted to do something creative because I think that, again, just I like 
the creative process, but I think also that really facilitates my science, my ability to invent things. And so doing stuff outside the pure scientific domain, I think really actually helps the science. And so uh, I started writing and again, that led to two, you know, those two books, but also, you know, I, I ended up writing and acting in a play called Brainworks. There's two versions of that, those plays, actually one of them won an Emmy and actually the most recent series was turned into a, uh, a series on PBS. Oh, wow. This is a uh, screenplay you wrote or? I wrote the play with one of my colleagues, Albert Kim, and we both, and we acted in it. It was turned into a play, which we acted in, and then uh, it was filmed and it was turned into a, a documentary series on PBS. So you can, if you look up Brainworks and Eric Luthart, you'll find the, the series. You said you won an Emmy Award? Yeah, the first series of Brainworks won a regional Emmy. Wow. Congratulations. That's very nice. <laughs> is it true that you also hold over 1,000 patents? Well, yes, I guess I've got around 600 issued and another thousand pending. Wow, that is amazing. What is your secret? What advice do you give to potential innovators? I mean, that's an amazing productivity and invention. What is a guide for young people that want to invent like that? So I think, number one, You know, I got involved with a number of inventor groups early on. One of the groups was called Intellectual Ventures. And, and since then, I've started, you know, my center, which is the Center for Innovation in Neuroscience and Technology. And fundamentally, I think the inventive process, number one, to be an inventor, just like surgery, just like physical fitness, it's a skill and a mindset that you can build and become strong with. Now, I think one of the things about being an inventor is that people have this kind of, I think, misconception that a lot of inventors, like it's this kind of singular thing where this just magic pops out of one person's brain. And there are times you have aha moments, but to get to those aha moments, it's really about, as a neurosurgeon, this is important, having a real humility to interact with people from very different domains, engineers, scientists, computer scientists, mathematicians, And sharing what you know and really being receptive to what they know and finding these interesting common grounds from different disciplines, that is the fertile ground for coming up with new things. And I think, you know, being a good inventor is about having good relationships with a lot of different people and having a network of really smart people and having humility and respect to really kind of listen to them and hear them. And then you take kind of those interesting and novel insights and bring them into your world and see how you can recreate that for what's important for stuff that you work with or taking what you know and giving it to them so that, you know, those insights can be transposed and those solutions can be transposed into a new novel environment. You know, being a good inventor is really being able to really create, you know, again, at the bottom line is good relationships with a lot of different people. So yes, I've been on a lot of patents and fortunately all those patents, I'd say 99.9% of them are where I'm co-inventors with some other people doing interesting things. That is quite impressive. So for young neurosurgeons or young people that want to invent, is there some organizations that, it, you know, it would help if belong to the organizations? Uh, for, for example, you mentioned the Intellectual Ventures. Is that like an organization that helps you learn more about inventing? It is an organization. It's a company that was really into uh, creating novel ideas at the time. So I don't, you know, they've kind of, you know, change course and they do some different things. Now, I'm not as involved with them anymore, but uh, I think the key is, number one, as a neurosurgeon, you know, as neurosurgeons, we very much 
have the mindset we can only do or train to do. And there's a good reason for that, right? Like you just can't go off and, you know, do cerebrovascular surgery if you haven't been trained to do it. But I think as a nurse, you have to kind of force yourself to get outside your comfort zone and be willing to learn about domains such as engineering or math or programming. You know, you don't necessarily need a degree to do. You just need to have be willing to put the, you know, the man hours in to really start from scratch and learn about that stuff. And I think that, you know, put yourself out there, start saying, hey, like, again, like I was a theology major going into engineering, like what the heck, you know, but it's really comes down to willfulness and work ethic and put yourself out there and like ask for mentorship from an engineer, ask from whatever field of interest and go outside your comfort zone and start to, you know, network and make friends with people who are absolutely nothing to do with what you do. And the more you do that, the more you're going to find, you know, really interesting places that are new. That's fascinating. That's really incredibly uh, helpful. So tell me about, you know, the most gratifying aspects of your work. What has been the most gratifying for you? There's moments. Most of them are human moments. Like, you know, I'll give you a, a very concrete example. So again, to me, uh, you know, uh, something I'm very proud of is just recently we had uh, one of our technologies called Ipsy Hand get FDA approved. And that's a brain computer interface. It's a non-invasive headset using the uninjured side of the brain to control a chronic stroke patient's paralyzed hand. And if they use it for over three months, they really recover a significant amount of function. And it was given a breakthrough designation by the FDA. It was FDA approved about a month and a half ago. And it's gotten a lot of press. And and for me, getting that device across the finish line as the first FDA-approved brain-computer interface was a big moment. But, you know, I'll tell you, but even more gratifying is when we were doing the clinical trials, a patient, you know, kind of flagged me down. And he said to me, you know, Dr. Luther, Dr. Luther, you know, I just want to tell you, I can put my pants on again. And, you know, I think what was so kind of awesome about that moment was that I saw for the first time an idea that I had that was, you know, at that time a little crazy using the uninjured side of the brain to control kind of uh, in a stroke patient to control their paralyzed limb and, and to see kind of it made real in somebody's life was really gratifying because nobody had done that before. And that feeling that, you know, your idea is now taking off or like in impacting people's lives. But so often as neurosurgeons, we do impact people's lives. We make, you know, again, we take out a brain tumor, we clip an aneurysm, we fix somebody's spine, put a deep brain simulator. But these are things where, you know, quite literally standing on the shoulders of giants who have made those things or developed those techniques. But when you do something that is your or your idea with some other people like that is new and you see it for the first time, impacting a person is, is deeply satisfying because you know you've contributed something that is going to kind of grow beyond your efforts. Wow, that is uh, amazing. I mean, our show is called Optimal Neurospine about optimizing neurological function. And this is a prototypical example of that. But this is a incredible. The first FDA approved BCI. Can you just describe briefly what exactly is it a non-invasive stimulator or an invasive? It's not a stimulator, just to be clear. It's really the Ipsy hand is three parts. It's a kind of a headset, you know, specifically designed so a stroke patient could put it on one handed. A robotic exoskeleton. Again, that's a wearable. It opens and closes their hand, their paralyzed hand and a tablet that basically walks them through how to use the system. 
So basically, the headset picks up signals from the uninjured side of the brain that's associated with the intention to move their paralyzed hand. And when it picks up those signals, it opens and closes their hand according to their movement intention. And after they use that for you know about three months, although we start to see results in the first four weeks, that they get a significant improvement in their motor function in the chronic phase of stroke. And I think that's what's so important because basically we know that after, you know, six months, whatever motor function that they've lost isn't coming back in a meaningful way. And I think the secret sauce of the brain computer interface approach is that it, it comes down to all about timing, that basically when you tightly couple movement, they're getting proprioceptive feedback in their hand with this robotic exoskeleton that's tied to brain signals in the uninjured side of their brain, that's creating what we call a Hebbian model, things that fire together, wire together. And that leads to, so I think that really creates the right physiologic environment to uh, promote plasticity and these people gain significant hand function back. Wow, this is so fascinating. I could talk to you for, for an hour, but let me give you one last question here. If you had a magic wand, what question or research would you do? Unlimited resources, basically. The key would be the unlimited resources, right? right. Because, right. you know, the, the honest truth is I think there's so much good stuff out there, quite honestly, like whether it's in the labs or some of these early startup companies. And resources is a real barrier to moving these technologies from the lab to getting it, you know, all the regulatory you know, hurdles which are there, which are necessary. I don't want to, you know, say that, you know, they're not necessary. They are necessary, but they're expensive. So I think that, you know, it, the first thing I would wish for with my magic wand is unlimited resources, because I think there's many, many wonderful things out there. Now, if you ask me, okay, well, which things am I going to pick? Well, I think that certainly I think I would expand our current repertoire of, you know, kind of non-invasive brain computer interfaces for functional restoration of multiple broken neural circuits, whether it be broken motor neural circuits or broken attentional circuits to really improve people with stroke. I think the other thing that, you know, I'm, I'm deeply interested in because I think that there's an absolute enormous need is that I think, you know, with psychiatric and mental health problems and chronic pain, that these are what I would call networkopathies, where we've got an imbalanced brain network. And I think that there's a number of technologies that are emerging right now that are minimally invasive or barely invasive that we can create that create these rebalancing of the network. And so I think that uh, kind of depression-related implantables you know, I think that that's a huge future opportunity. And especially after COVID and the market crises and everything, that mental health is a real issue. And creating technologies for that, I think, is another really important need that I think we could, as neurosurgeons, really address with some of these important neural interface technologies. That's amazing. Well, this brings us to the end of this fascinating conversation. I want to say congratulations for your FDA approval for your the IPSI hand. And really want to take the time to thank you for taking the time to speak with us about BCI and all the great work that you're doing. Wish you continued success. Keep up the good work. This is really incredible and very powerful for patients. Thanks very much for having me. It's always fun to talk about this stuff. Thanks for listening to Optimal Neurospine Podcast with Dr. Max Boachi. If you enjoyed this episode, we hope you share it with others. Leave us positive reviews on social media or leave a rating and review on iTunes. Check out our website, 
maxwellboachi.com slash podcasts for show transcripts and other information. Join us next time for another edition of Optimal Neurospine Show. Optimal Neurospine Show.